Hey, welcome back. It's the Immigration Hour. I, this is your host, Charles Cook. You know, the funny part about this particular show today is we've already recorded it for like 10 minutes, and then it wasn't recording. Uh, anyway, it's great to be back. Uh, I have with me today, as my co-host for this week, Laura Roseman, my partner. Laura, welcome to the Immigration Hour. Thank you so much. I and you're going, my God, this is, is it always run like a train off the rails here? That's uh, really the question. It's fascinating. Is it? It's, it's <laughs> Is it always running like this? Well, yeah, sometimes it is running like this. Um, we want to kind of kick off today. You know, we've been talking for years uh, on the show about politics and immigration. Uh, but there is a, something that caught my eye this week, Laura, uh, which was a, a Pew poll, a Pew religion survey from last year. And it just seemed particularly relevant today when we're in the midst of a, uh, a refugee arrival on a southern border, uh, that is that some of the highest, well, for, as refugees, I would say it's the highest level we've seen maybe since World War II, um, because we, we've always seen more people come across our border per month in the past, but they weren't really refugees. They were economic migrants. Uh, what we're seeing now on our southern border are really, it's really a refugee situation. Uh, folks that are seeking asylum. And the Trump administration is doing everything in his power, everything, to make it impossible to win asylum. I mean, they just are. Now, Laura is not an asylum lawyer. She doesn't do <laughs> asylum cases. But she understands politics and how, how this kind of works. And I, when I saw this poll that came out of Pew, uh, Pew Religions Research uh, Department last year, and I, it popped up again uh, on my Twitter feed, I had to tweet it out because I, it speaks volumes about where we are as a country, and it's also radically surprising. So the Pew Religion Survey uh, went out and asked this question. Um, the what is the percentage of people who say that the US has a responsibility to accept refugees? So the question is, you ask somebody, does the United States have a responsibility to accept refugees. Now, this because this was a year ago, it was it was focused on the southern border, but it was also focused on other refugees around the world, um, and it's broken down religiously. Now, it doesn't have uh, at least the the little blurb that we have does not have every religion listed. For example, Jews aren't listed here. Um, Jews would probably say, yeah, 100 percent, we have a duty to accept refugees. At least, let's call them high 90s. All right. Um, as as a Mormon, I would say we're probably in the high 70s because we do have some crazy people in our religion. Um, but I thought this was fascinating. The, the highest, the, the, the group of religious folks, let's call it the, the religious category, with the highest agreement that the U.S. has a responsibility for refugees are the religiously unaffiliated. Not atheists. I'm not talking about atheists. They're probably 100% for all I know. But uh, religion, these are people that have maybe become disillusioned with organized religion. They, they believe at 65% that we have a responsibility to accept refugees into the United States, uh, followed closely by black Protestants. 63% uh, believe we have a responsibility to accept refugees, followed by Catholics, who are, eh, I don't know, 50% or so. Here's where the numbers are stunning. White mainline Protestants, I would, that would be the Presbyterians, the Methodists, um, um, uh, the other folks, the, other, the rapidly shrinking white churches in America, 43%. But here's the stunning number. 
white evangelicals, only 25% believe that we have a responsibility to accept refugees in the United States. Laura, I mean, as a Christian, I am stunned by that number. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, It surprises me because it makes no sense, but I think that, I think there's a social element there. You have a social responsibility to help people who are in need. Are you saying white evangelicals are socially irresponsible? It, it well, I think that there's a theme that that Trump has 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 provided them, which is fear. Um, ah, and, yeah. and that fear element has taken over their own um, faith. Their own faith? I, I can't speak I mean, presumably, that. white evangelicals are the most Christian people out there, right? They, they well, believe in the inerrancy of the Bible um, and that Jesus has got you protected, and therefore we shouldn't care for refugees. It, uh, that seems to be a dichotomy. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, um, you've, you know, I've read the Bible. You know, I've read the New Testament, particularly as a Christian, and I, uh, Jesus seems to speak about this occasionally. Uh, the whole uh, Good Samaritan, um, you know, stopping by, helping people. I, I think that Trump has changed what refugees mean to a lot of people. He certainly has demonized them, hasn't yeah, he? He yeah. certainly made them evil, uh, that they un- undeserving of our compassion, undeserving of our love, undeserving of our, of, our, of our goods. I think he's dehumanized them. Dehumanization is certainly something that Trump is really, really good at. Yeah. It helps when you're not human yourself. Um, it makes it easier to dehumanize people. <laughs> <laughs> you can get really good at that. Um, no, I'm sure Trump is a living human being. Pretty sure. Anyway, I mean, I'm pretty sure. But I, I just, I just think that that's what's happened. He's, he's, he's created them into these monsters that we need to fear, um, which is ridiculous. And, and numbers are uh, when you, when you do a little bit deeper dive and you look at the white evangelical Protestants, uh, who at sixty-eight percent said we do not have any responsibility. Apparently, seven percent don't care, but. We actively don't have a responsibility. But then you look at that among whites. So you drill down among whites, which then is just Protestants uh, uh, and Catholics. Uh, if you have a college degree, you 65% of you believe that you should have a responsibility, you have a responsibility to care for immigrants, uh, refugees. And if you don't have a degree, 50% believe you don't have a responsibility to care. I mean, that's, so clearly education has a role to play in this. Uh, it also, if you kind of put the math together, uh, if, if in fact white evangelical Protestants only 25% believe um, that we have a responsibility to care for immigrants, that would mean most of them have no college degree. I mean, looking, look, you have to look, you know, look at the numbers here. Uh, I just think this is, this is a fascinating study uh, put out by Pew last year, but really disturbing. Uh, and, it, you know, if you really focused on uh, making America great again, that's really your goal, um, that apparently doesn't involve your religious faith. If you're, if you're a Christian, uh, because a, a true Christian would extend the hand of fellowship, would welcome the, the stranger, would make room for the, 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 the injured person, uh, if, if you're true to the faith that you, if you, that you preach. I think... What's more interesting would be the leaders of those faiths and what their attitudes are about refugees, um, because I think that you would find 
that they are more in favor of accepting refugees. Um, I think that it's not a, a good representation of the actual faith, but well, let's maybe hope not. That call themselves. I mean, followers. these these are I assume these are anonymous kind of surveys. Mm-hmm. Let's hope it's not a representation. I have a very dear friend, uh, Rondell Trevino, who's uh, a pastor up in Tennessee, uh, and he is constantly preaching. Um, um, uh, from an evangelical perspective, uh, the importance of uh, caring for the stranger, for uh, uh, doing uh, the uh, um, uh, what 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 Christ would teach you to do. Uh, he is uh, really just a, a terrific human being, and what's interesting about him is how much hate mail he gets in response from. Other evangelicals. Um, it is uh, his tweets are fantastic. I'd recommend anybody to follow uh, Rondell Trevino um, on on Twitter. Um, but here's one thing he wrote. For example, your theology is deeply distorted when you're completely fine with missionaries illegally smuggling Bibles into countries, yet furious when some Christian immigrants come to the U.S. undocumented to share the gospel with unbelieving U.S. citizens. Uh, you know, he's got uh, lots of uh, um, uh, great posts on here, but he gets, um, he gets really terrible things said to him uh, from other people purporting uh, to be Christians. And it's, um, it's something that uh, it, I, I just don't get, uh, how you can purport to, 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 to say that Jesus is your Savior, uh, but, but then deny him to other other work, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and I, I just am at a loss. This this particular survey kind of threw me for a loop, uh, and uh, I, I would hope that uh, um, folks would take a deeper look at their own their own selves, regardless of their faith, and realize that we're kind of all in this together. Uh, I, I think there's far too many people out there, Laura, that are just in it to protect themselves, which is what Trump preaches. It's I, all about protecting I, I himself. I think that he takes advantage of people who are maybe in not good situations, and he takes advantage of their fear of the future and fear of their job security. And 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 he preaches a lot of uh, misinformation um, and manipulates, yep. uh, manipulates religion. Um, with that misinformation, I, I really feel that way. I don't. I don't think that this is a religious issue. I think that this is um, more uh, an issue of misinformation and fear that's being generated by administration that that wants to benefit. From I, that I think fear. you're dead on when talking about that. That fear is what they these guys currently in power believe will keep them in power mm-hmm. if they can keep the fear going. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk more about fear in the context of H-1Bs. We'll be right back here on the Immigration Hour. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. Again, host Charles Cook. Got my partner, Laura Rosemary here. Laura is is our uh, employment-based immigration expert. She's the chair of our immigration department, uh, business immigration department here at the firm. And I, I couldn't have Laura on and not talk about her favorite topic, H-1Bs. 
favorite, yes. H1Bs are, are, are the lifeblood of, of Laura's. They course through her body like, like widgets uh, through a factory. Uh, now, Laura, there is a big vote coming up today. And uh, on the, on the uh, bill, uh, which is titled the uh, Fairness for High-Skilled Immigrants Act, uh, otherwise known as H.R. Uh, 1044. Um, and it's scheduled to come up for a vote either today or tomorrow. I think it's today uh, in, in the House. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying, because there are something in the neighborhood of 300-plus co-sponsors, they're trying to have just the floor vote to skip the committee hearings. And this has been through, I mean, a lot of iterations. Lots of people have been put on it. And it, it attracts um, over 100 Republican co-sponsors. So all, basically half the Republican caucus supports this bill. Um, and, but in order to get and pass on the floor without committee vote, they have to have 290 votes. So it's not just a majority. It'll pass in a majority, but they have to go through the regular order. This allows them to skip the regular order. So Laura asked a great question. Well, what is, is H.R. 1044 a good bill or a bad bill? Now, you know, we asked that question only because, you know, what is the purpose of 1044? Well, right now, if you're from India and an employer sponsors you for a green card, you are not going to get that green card for about... 150 years in EB-2 and 80 or so years in EB-3, it, it, according to the numbers, if you look at it. Now, why is that the case? Well, no country gets more than 7% of the available non-immigrant visa numbers in each category. Uh, but at the same time, so if, you were, if you're just doing the math, and if every other country was using their quota, then it would take 80 years. But one thing we talked about last week on the show is not every country is using their quota. In fact, only two countries are currently using their EB-2 and EB-3 quota. Uh, if we take a look at the, the visa bulletin uh, for uh, July, what we'll see is that within the EB-3 category, uh, only India and China are backlogged for purposes of uh, processing the immigrant visa. So over here, Laura, as we look, as we're taking a look here, we look at an EB-3 to final action dates. India and China for EB-2 and 3 are backlogged, but nobody else. That means no other country, not even the Philippines anymore, which used to be backlogged for years. Mexico used to be backlogged for years. That actually, we talked about last week, that's a problem. That means we are not attracting not only high-skilled immigrants, we're not even attracting lesser-skilled immigrants. Under the other worker category, it's current. Nannies can immigrate in a year and a half if you're not from India and China. So India and China are already using other countries' numbers. We know that's the case because these numbers flow through each category. Um, and it's, it, that's what's enabled China to come up to EB2, EB3 in 2016. And really, if no changes are made to... Um, to this pro to to the visa categories and how they're run, China will likely become current in for EB two and EB three in a couple of years because other countries aren't using. So what what this bill's designed to do is more effectively use the visas that that they're currently using but having to do in a roundabout way. Now right now, for example, we'll go to Peru and we'll say if you want to immigrate to America. Employer sponsors you to be a cook, 
You can be here in 18 months. Do a labor share, do an I-140, consular process, you're up here in 18 months. And people aren't coming. Now, that's disturbing, not only as an immigration lawyer, but it should disturb demographers as well. If we're not attracting people through the legal means, that means we have a problem with our system. We're no longer the destination that we, want, that we need to be. And we know intermixed with this is a reduced number of F-1 visas, now down by 20% since Trump was president. A re uh, they want to eliminate OPT, which would eliminate people from being able really to stay in the United States at the graduation. So they would really eviscerate this category. But at the same time, we know that there are you know, 300,000 uh, uh, Indians that aren't going to get a green card for a very long time. Uh, even if these numbers remain the same around the world, they're still in for a very long waiting period. So what, what HR 1044 is designed to do uh, is uh, re not only renumber section, but, but make a couple of them. Here's what they say is this. This is actually in section 2E. It says, if it is determined that the total number of immigrant visas made available under section 203As uh, which is the, the section that talks about what each country gets for visas, uh, from any single foreign state will exceed the numerical limitation in that fiscal year in determining the allotment of immigrant visas under that section. Visa numbers with respect to natives of that country shall be allocated to an extent practical otherwise because in a manner so that the proportion of visa numbers made available under each paragraph is equal to the ratio of the total number of visas made available under the respective paragraph the total number of visas under that section. What the heck does that mean? What does that mean, Laura? You don't know what that means. You're, you're looking I'm, at me. You, I'm, explain it. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense, no, does it? Explain it. <laughs> so you, you would actually have to go to section 203A of the law. So let's go to section 203A. Uh, let's open it up here. Uh, Second, we got to go to the INA 203, um, if I could type properly, of the Act. Uh, not 203. We're going to go to 202, 203. And this is the allocation of visa. You'll find it's 8 U.S.C. 1153. 203A. Um, so this is the preference. Aliens subject to worldwide numbers shall be allocated visas as follows. And it, the section A is uh, one, two, three, and four, brothers and sisters. Section B, um, priority workers, A and B, uh, aliens holding advanced degrees. So it, it, tells, it tells you what each of the categories are <coughs> as part of the process in 203 <coughs> and how that's going to be uh, allocated. Now, if you read this particular provision again and say, okay, in any fiscal year, the proportion of visa numbers made available under sections paragraphs 1 through 4 of 203 is equal to the total number of visas available, available under section 203A. Huh? So what, the, what they're telling you is when you look at section 203A, is that as these numbers are divided, each country's numbers should be reflective of the demand for that country. Let's take a look at this again. Uh, if it is determined that numbers available for any given year for one country exceed the number of location, okay, that's the, let me say, Indian China's numbers shall be allocated in a manner so that it is equal to the ratio of number of visas made available under the respective paragraph of total numbers made available in each section. So if we look at section 203, 
that determines there's 40,000 EB1s, there's 40,000 EB2s, there's 40,000 EB3s, 10 EB4s, 10 EB5s. Um, that's the percentage they're looking at. So now they say, first of all, they get rid of the Chinese Student Protection Act offset. Say, look, that's, that's just gone. We're not going to have a Chinese Student Protection Act offset anymore. Uh, and that'll be effective as of the end of this fiscal year, beginning fiscal year 2020. So here's the rules. For fiscal year 2020, 15% of the immigrant visa numbers made available under sections 2, 3, and 4 of 203B, so that's EB2, EB3, and EB4, okay, uh, EB5, so 3, EB3, EB3, EB5, shall be allocated to immigrants who are natives of foreign states or dependent area that is not one of the largest aggregate numbers who are beneficiaries of numbers. What, is, what does that mean? 15% of the immigrant visa numbers in EB2, 3, and 5 shall be allocated to every other country in the world that is not India or China. So what do you mean by that? Read that again. For fiscal year 2020, 15% of the immigration visa is made available under those categories shall be given to India and China. So what they're saying is India and China currently each only get 6.7%. They're going to get an additional 15% of that 85%. So the worldwide numbers go down to 70%. And in 2020, India and China get 30%. That's great. All right. In 2021, it goes down, India and China get 24%, so an extra 10%. And in 2022, they get an extra 10%. So it's, it sets for three years, these numbers, they get extra visas for those categories. Okay? And the rest of the country gets less. Now, that likely will not cause a backlog in the other categories because these numbers are reflective of what India and China are already using. And thus, if there are still leftover visas among the rest of the world, those will in addition flow to India and China uh, to, to get this done. So we go per country limits, so per country levels. Those are the transition rules. With respect to visas reserved, as we just talked about, the number of such visas made available to any single foreign state may not exceed 25% of the total visa or 2% of the total number of such visas. So you, you can't get more than 25% as a single country. That's your max from the current 7%. Again, looking this, this bill five years ago when, when several countries besides India and China had backlog numbers was unfair, and a lot of people opposed it. But demographics have changed. And now only India and China are backlogged. Now, does this mean that Mexico might backlog or the Philippines? They might backlog, but they might not. And in China will likely get caught up within a couple of years. So if instead of being able to use 1,500 visas, you can now get up to 10,000 visas. The question is per country, so that, so that India and China are using up to 50% of the numbers. You have to look at what, what are the overall numbers of backlog visas um, uh, in, in process right now? How many are? How many do you think there are? Come on, how many, how many, how many Chinese? We're, we're in a guessing game here. Yeah. 
do, do, do you know how many are currently pending? How many there are? Like hundreds uh, of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. All right. So let's see if we can find the uh, the official numbers for the waiting list report. So this is a waiting list report uh, that as of November 1, 2018. So for employment-based third preference total numbers, um, there were, it said, um, 50,000 as of November 1, 2018. Now you're thinking, what? that can't be right. There's a lot more Indians than that. Well, this is the Department of State's numbers. This is what the Department of State knows. So those numbers are not, they can't be used. That's not, that's not accurate for purposes of this. We have to look at the USCIS's numbers. What does the USCIS say um, are the numbers that are, that are pending out there as part of this process? Now, here's where it gets really interesting, Laura. So if we look at the Department of State's numbers... Department of State said they had, what, 50,000 EB2s. But that's, that can't be right. No. Uh, that can't be right. We have to go to the USCIS numbers. So here we are. Uh, the, as of May um, 20, well, I guess this is about as of May 2018, immigration says that for China, there are 16,000 EB2s and only 3,000 EB3. So if there's only 3,900 EB3s for China... And China can all of a sudden use up to 25% of the number of visas available. Now, yep. times that by three, okay, because it's a family size of three. So let's say that's 12,000 people. China would clear their EB3 backlog in a year and a half like that. Yep. Gone. If they don't get any more numbers besides the 25% under this. Their EB2 numbers would clear in about two and a half years. Maybe three years. They'd clear that backlog, even adding more cases. The China first preference and, and fifth preference are going to take a lot longer to cure. We'll get into that in a second. Now, India is interesting. India has 55,000 EB3s. So if they can use up to 25% of up to 10,000 a year, they can clear their backlog in about seven years. Now, unfortunately, they have 216,000 uh, times three, 600,000 EB2s. Now, what you have to understand, Laura, every EB2 can be an EB3, right? No. Yes, you can downgrade. You could downgrade. So mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of downgrading going back and forth. So let's take a look at it and say that there's 260,000, there's 750,000 um, EB3, EB2, EB3s from India. Uh, that means that it will take somewhere in the neighborhood of still a decade and a half, to, but it's better than 150 years, right? Plus, they'll get to use other countries' numbers. Look at the, look at these other countries in which there are no, there literally is no no EB3 backlog in any other country. Philippines is not as last. That's cleared now. None. Only India and China have EB3 backlogs. That's it. That's all there are. And really, China has got a, a huge fifth preference backlog. So basically what this does, what what H.R. 1044 does, is take a 150-year backlog and make it a 10 to 15-year backlog, which is not, I mean, it's bad, but it's not. But if, if, if in conjunction with that, other countries don't do their, don't use the visas, you could clear that backlog actually pretty quickly. 
actually pretty quickly. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You know, the, the, and, and, and so, so as they say, no country more than 25% in 2021 and 22. So now another rule, special to prevent unused visas. If with respect to these three, it's only for three years, would that rule prevent the total number of visas from being available, then the rest of them may be issued in accordance with, without regard to the paragraph. So what they're saying here is, yes, you're limited to 25% unless we wouldn't use the other ones, and then, bam, you can get more, which means they're going to get more than 25% uh, without harming anybody else. So that's why this bill is now good, and I, and I support it, when I did not support it before, because before it was robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, and we're simply not doing that. Uh, so, and, and again, this bill's short, right? It's just yeah. quick. I don't know why you need long hearings on this. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Once you put the math in your brain together, uh, you get a better understanding of actually how this works. Uh, they have a transition rule for approved beneficiaries, notwithstanding blah, 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 blah. Um, immigrant visas shall be allocated such that no alien receives a visa later than the alien would have received his visa had the act not been enacted. So that means nobody else is waiting as part of this. And also why they only did it for three years. Um, so the, the bill itself is it's a big deal. Now, why, why do we go into detail on that bill? Well, um, we, we know that there is a group of people out there who hate H-1B workers, and particularly Indians. And you will find them on the front page of Breitbart today, uh, where their article written by notorious anti-immigrant Neil Monroe um, said this, uh, House sets Tuesday vote on green card giveaway to 300,000 Indian contract workers with a picture of four Indian men working on a computer. No racism here. Go on your way. Nothing to worry about. Uh, now, Mr. Monroe really hates immigrants, particularly Indian immigrants, because he hates these guys that are supposedly taking, we read this here, the Democratic-run House will decide Tuesday whether to put at least 300,000 Indian contract workers on a fast track to valuable green cards. Fast these track. guys are without, without, they're already on a green card track, okay, they're going to get green cards, all right. So incentivizing more low-wage Indian graduates to take U.S. jobs from middle-class American graduates. Huh. It's, it's a lie. How many lies can you actually pack into one sentence? That's what's stunning. These, these are more lies than you can even imagine in only one lowly sentence. Um, here, but here's, he has special disdain, however, for Republicans. Roughly, roughly 108 Republicans. That's actually exactly, by the way. They weren't, they're not rough Republicans. They're not kind of Republicans. They're actually... But it, one, but it sounds good. It makes them sound good. <laughs> have co-sponsored the green card giveaway called H.R. 1044, even though the Democrats' legislation is backed by Silicon Valley investors who oppose the GOP. Democrats have kept the legislation secret. From whom? Stupid people like Neil Monroe? No. Uh, Billing has no hearing or committee votes. They've actually had multiple hearings on this concept for years, and it's being quarterbacked by the immigration lawyer who helped Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer write the disastrous King of Eight amnesty bill in 2013. Let's conflate 
as much as possible into this. This, this is just stunning. Uh, the GOP legislators backed the giveaway, including GOP Rep. Ken Buck, who's the top Republican on the House Immigration Committee, and Tennessee GOP Chuck Fleischman, the top Republican on the House Appropriations Committee. Um, wow, this is... It, by the way, his drivel continues on and on uh, and on, um, and uh, he, he has particular disdain. So he said, each year, roughly 800,000 young Americans graduate from college with skilled degrees in healthcare, engineering, software, science, math, architecture, business, or design. The degrees allow them to ask for good wages and issues, free market for labor. Yes, America. But Congress damages America's salaries and increased by allowing companies to import a supposedly temporary workforce of 1.2 million foreign college graduate contract workers, many of whom are from India. Yeah, that's not true. No, none of no, it's true. That, that makes you believe that there's 1.2 million a year coming in, right? And then also... And there's actually 65,000. Most of them graduate from U.S. universities, by the way. Uh, they're eager to take jobs at, at low wage. Yeah, they're getting paid $13 an hour to program. Uh, wow. This this drivel... You know, you, you go earlier to the first part of our show. Well, it's the same we, thing. It's this is the same thing. And, this, and, is, this is being fed stupidity by people who know better. Neil Monroe knows better than this. But he makes money and enriches himself mm -hmm. by demonizing this, by making people dumber uh, as part of this process. By making people dumber, he makes himself richer. Um, I would, um, you know, I'd, uh, I'd encourage you not to read this drivel because you'll come away from it feeling stupider. <laughs> but you have to know what these folks are thinking. Um, I believe wholeheartedly uh, this bill is... Uh, going to pass uh, easily today in the House, but I don't know if it's got a chance in heck in the Senate, although there are some very strong co-sponsors, including Mike Lee in the Senate uh, and Kamala, Kamala Harris are supporting this in the Senate. Um, so it's uh, overall really interesting. And uh, uh, Laura, is this going to pass? I hope so. It's, uh, a, it's a fair, it, look, it's a fair bill. It makes sense, but it's complicated and it's really easy to distort it. Um, because nobody has that, the That's the problem with immigration, isn't it? it? It's complicated. Immigration's I mean, complicated, therefore it's easy to distort it, yeah. to lie about it, to misrepresent yeah. it, because you, you, you require a JD to actually understand but, what's going but on. But that's why we need more people speaking out about it. And and companies and here we and are on the are creating U.S. jobs and that's, here we are on Immigration Hour speaking out about but it. But that's the hypocrisy because a bill like this is creating employment in this country for everyone, including U.S. workers. But that's what... Preach it to the choir, but, sister! But it gets drowned out by Breitbart. By, and, by this and, drivel? And by anyone else who just wants to say, ooh, immigrant bad. And, we want to come that's back that's and talk more say. about this drivel here in a second. We'll take a break here on the Immigration Hour. Hey, welcome back to the Immigration Hour here on America's Web Radio. Um, Again, your your host Charles Cook, uh, my co-host today, Laura. She's going to think of Laura Rosemarin. This is fun. This is fun. This is this fun. Is fun. Um, yeah, this is fun. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to kind of do this last segment here. Uh, a tweet this morning uh, from my friend uh, David Beer of the Cato Institute caught my eye. 
caught my eye. He tweeted this. If you don't follow David Beer, by the way, you should. He's absolutely awesome. Uh, at uh, David underscore J underscore Beer, B-I-E-R, uh, at Cato. Uh, follow at Cato as well on immigration. Cato immigration is fantastic. Whether you love libertarians or hate libertarians, their immigration folks are brilliant because they, 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 they approach it from an economic perspective. Uh, here's what he wrote this morning. FAIR, that is the Federation Against Immigrants uh, uh, Returning, or something like that. No? <laughs> uh, FAIR accidentally published its pro-discrimination post, but forgot to remove its own editor's comments uh -oh. that the author is making totally unsubstantiated claims about job displacement. Um, and he got a screen grab. you got to love this. Uh, why removing per-country cramps is harmful. So the article says this, eliminating employment, this goes to the HR 1044, yeah, sure. eliminating employment-based country caps is, is a, it's, not even, it's, it's just so poorly written, is step, bracket, a step, uh, in the wrong direction. If it becomes law, HR 1044 would further accelerate the displacement of American tech workers and deepen the tech industry's harmful addiction to cheap foreign labor. It would thus undermine the benefits of a tightening labor market for American workers. And in quotes, it says this. This is from an editor. This does not explain why limiting caps would displace tech workers. <laughs> uh, you, you have to love uh, these guys. Uh, I wonder if they took down the link uh, once they saw Beer's tweet on this. Yeah, it looks like, um, let's see what's happening. Did they, did they fix it? Uh, uh, looks like they fixed the fixed the download here. Uh, this is um, uh, this is hilarious. Um, no, it it did no. They left it up. Left it. It's still up on the fair's website. Uh, the editor's comment. This does not explain why limited caps would displace tech workers. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely hilarious. Uh, I don't know who Paul Wells Sterna is, but I think you should fire him. Um, uh, you might also want to go to an English class uh, to learn a little bit more about how to write properly. Um, this is uh, absolutely hilarious. Uh, they never even fixed the words yeah. A step. Do you proofread this stuff at all, Fair? Um, thank you, David Beer, for giving a chuckle to my day. Uh, I love the one comment on there. It's like they don't even pretend anymore. Uh, <laughs> it is just, uh, um, I, I just love David. I just thought that was absolutely awesome. Um, and, uh, but there is, you know, there's, there's so much other stuff out there, um, that is used constantly to attack employment-based immigration. Uh, Laura, you deal with this, this muck every day. Um, now you had one of our paralegals came to see you. I'm not going to name her in this show. One came to see you and she was breaking out in hives. Yes, she was. Why I, was she breaking out in hives? We called it the RFE disease. Um, they are just, uh, Department of Homeland Security is basically creating any reason possible to either request more evidence for an H-1B petition or deny it. And we call it moving the goalpost. Uh, just creating their own rules MSU. and reasons. Yeah. Um, just Making to make stuff up. Yep to make it more difficult. And it's frustrating for employers and it's frustrating for foreign nationals because uh, there's no security anymore for their jobs. 
because they constantly are being they, they, they could be in their job for 12 years on an H-1B, and then all of a sudden, oh, you, that's not a professional position. We were wrong for the last 12 years. Yeah, because uh, USCIS gives no deference to their own decision-making. Which is, which is cr- crazy when yes. you think about it. Yes. Uh, which, but there is a group, there is a place you can go to, uh, to actually hold CIS's feet to the fire, isn't there? Court. Go to court. You know, uh, we're filing a lot more lawsuits these days, aren't we? We have to. Uh, we have a whole department. That's all they do is file lawsuits in federal court. Uh, this is uh, the only way to hold them accountable. Now, a lot of employers, especially big employers, have been reluctant to go to court, haven't they? They're, they're, fear- they're fearful. They're fearful. They think they're going to be retaliated. Yes. There is no such thing. There is no retaliation. Uh, and funny, as a friend of mine, uh, John Wasden, worked at oil, uh, and did uh, the defense side of him, defended USCIS for years. He said, look, one, suing them doesn't, not only do they not retaliate against you, they're afraid you're going to sue them more. Mm-hmm. So they're more likely to show deference to you in the future, not retaliate against you. They don't want to get sued because right. getting sued hurts their bottom line, hurts their numbers. Uh, that's why they back off so often when, you, when they do get sued and they just, re- they just open, reopen cases and approve them. Um, a lot of companies don't sue because they don't want their name in the papers having sued the government or maybe they have a government contract pretending. But until more large companies sue on a regular basis, this nonsense will continue. But once, there, once the wave crests, and we, you know, part of our AILA conference this year was convincing immigration lawyers, I spoke on two separate panels on this, convincing immigration lawyers to bring these lawsuits in federal court. Until we do that, uh, they will keep doing the crazy stuff. But once we do that, once they are inundated with a tidal wave of, of litigation, they will, they will cave. They will absolutely cave because they're going to keep losing over and, and here's the good thing about this, these lawsuits. On those cases they do fight, we will get really good case law. We will get great case law that will then serve us going forward for a generation. So CIS is actually helping us in many ways to reduce their ability to harm these workers and these employers going forward by forcing us to go to court to get the decisions that will end up helping us in these cases going forward. It's a great way of looking at it. I mean, I think you have to look at it that way. That's the only way uh, you really... It's an opportunity. No, it's an opportunity to hold them accountable. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, I I just think it's going to be kind of fun going forward. Now, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about today, uh, and this was... um, this came out of Utah. You know, I'm kind of a Utah connection with the BYU. And um, uh, a group of state senators in Utah who had drafted uh, a decade ago, drafted what's called the Utah Compact. This was an idea that we should, you know, basically have, have a program to legalize people and do it in a way that everybody benefits. Um, a couple weeks ago, the Trump administration nominated a guy named Ronald Mortensen to be this under the assistant secretary saying a senior position. Mm-hmm for the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. What people don't know about him is that he is a longtime employee of the Center for Immigration Studies, a group with white nationalist ties and founded by eugenics people. And Mortensen is a leader of this organization, a senior people. Um, he has previously attacked the LDS Church for welcoming our undocumented brothers and sisters of church. Uh, he believes that undocumented members of the church should not be able to practice their deeply held faith by having baptisms, 
holding church positions, receiving blessings in their, and otherwise in the faith community. Uh, completely antithetical to what we believe. Very Christian, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he also believes the LDS church has stopped trying to reach out to undocumented people for missionary work. Um, uh, you know, this is this is crazy. So he really is antagonized by people in the church. He himself may be LDS, but he's he's part of that crazy part. Um, he's further maligned LDS leaders um, and leaders of all faith backgrounds who do not agree with his harsh, hurtful views on immigration. False claiming that religious leaders only love their neighbors as long as they are undocumented immigrants. He called them illegal aliens. I mean, this is a vile human being. Um, and this is, a, this is a state senator. These are state senators, right? They're so offended by this guy being nominated by Trump to a position that has enormous influence over U.S. refugee policy that they wrote an op-ed. Well, good for them. You know, they wrote an op-ed and demanded uh, that this guy not get confirmed. They said, Lee Romney, do not support this guy. This guy is a terrible human being. And so th- I think the good news is he will not be confirmed. I mean, uh, when, when they speak out in an op-ed like this, clearly with the backing of the LDS church, um, R- Lee and Romney are listening to this. So I think he doesn't get it. But here's the problem. He'll be the acting guy. They'll make him the acting guy in charge. And therefore, how do you put a notorious anti-immigrant, eugenicist, nativist in charge of immigration? Well, we shouldn't that, be surprised because they're already running CIS. Cuccinelli, the least qualified human being to ever be in charge of the immigration service, ever. And that's saying a great deal, ever. Um, you got anti-immigrants running DHS, uh, running ICE, running CBP, uh, running State Department. You know, it will take us a decade to clean the stench of these guys out of these of these agencies in the U.S. government. I can smell them from here. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know who's going to win the next election. I hope it's not Donald Trump. Uh, but at the same time, I hope it's somebody uh, that understands the level of despair that these folks have intentionally created within our affirmative and our defensive immigration systems. It's horrible. And on that cheery note, Laura, we're going to despedirnos. We're going to say goodbye <laughs> this week on the Immigration Hour. Thanks, folks, uh, for listening today. It has been um, um, uh, a good week. Thank you, Laura, for participating. I hope you'll join Thank us you. again. I will. Uh, I awesome. Till next pleasure. week. This is your host, Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at chuck at immigration.net. Uh, you can visit us on Twitter at ccook, C-K-U-C-K, or you can just have fun and see our website at immigration.net. Till next week. <laughs>